Hi, this is Kimena Valle, and you're watching A Student's Perspective. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to A Student's Perspective, the weekly series that connects students with designers, manufacturers, educators, industry professionals, and design media celebrities to hear their stories on just how they've gotten to where they are now. Through our conversations, we connect the past, present, and future of design to show just how much we can learn from each other to grow towards our fullest potential without prescribed limitations. Think of a student's perspective as a weekly design lecture series from the student's point of view. A student's perspective is a division of the nonprofit University Hall of Innovation, whose goals are to connect students with the design industry through design challenges and mentorship and a collaboration with the Marywood University Interior Architecture Program in Scranton, Pennsylvania. All interviews can be found in their video format at www.astudentsperspective.tv. For more information or sponsorship inquiries, please contact University Hall of Innovation at gmail.com. Hi guys, my name is Natalia Colasurdo, and today I am here with Jimena Valle, and today we are going to be talking about her and her many roles and titles that she has as founder, principal, lead AP of 15 Architecture and Design, and also her many roles such as adjunct professor at Temple University. Um, it's very exciting to have you here with us today. I'm very excited to talk to you. Thank you, Natala. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So today we'll be discussing about your firm's design ideologies and how you became the designer you are today, about hearing about where you got educated. So let's start there. Where was your undergrad? Perfect. So I went to University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. So I am a Gator. That's where, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> that's where I obtained my, my four-year bachelor's in design. Very, very nice. And then I see that you also had a minor as well in business. That's correct. Which, yes, always an interest. <laughs> which I find is very helpful for architecture students to take is business. They don't necessarily tell you that, or I'm not sure if they told you when you went to school, but um, it's definitely a hidden gem to learn about business if you're going into architecture and design. A hundred percent out there. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what uh, What in you decided to go for that minor? Did you realize that you wanted to open up your own business? No, I, I really didn't at that point. Um, but I think it was my own sense that in life, generally, having a good business sense was probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, to my uh, my mother owned a uh, boutique, and I think it just gave me the, the the sense that you know having that minor was probably a good idea. Right. That's awesome to hear. Um, so what was your, one of your favorite moments that you had as an undergrad, uh, speaking in terms of design school? So you have had a in really interesting program in that we were buried, you know, in the depths of Florida, but we had access to cities like Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, North Carolina, and, um, through the program, we visited those cities for studios, and then finally we visited New York City, which was where, uh, coincidentally, I was born in New York, in Manhattan, New York. Um, I grew up in Chile, but because of my father's travels, um, I was born in New York. So I had this like great um, 
you know, like desire to go back to New York. <laughs> Come full circle in a sense. Yeah. And, uh, and so U.S. program um, made it very clear that traveling and seeing different cities and understanding like the site of your intervention uh, was really important. And I, that really stuck with me. So always thinking about, you know, where a project is and the people that are going to use it and make it truly site specific to a set of requirements you know, specific, even if it's in within the same city, just a specific neighborhood. And the importance of that was something I really took away from that program. Uh, being very site specific is something I took away uh, a lot from in design school. It really kind of set up guidelines for your projects in a sense. If you kind of just let the site talk to you, all your questions are kind of answered in that, you know, like we don't realize that the answers are in front of us, but we can kind of create something out of what's there, whether that be through thinking how we would design that project. <laughs> or I love the way you said that, Natala. I think, you know, let the site speak to you with a, a lesson I, I learned early on and just being there, being present at the site and like really understanding it. You know, I, and sometimes in my practice now, like we don't always have access to the site, but doing that work at least remotely or like even watching videos about that site again just trying to be as connected to that site as possible is something that I also teach my students about now. Right so something that stood out to me I went to school in uh, Scranton Pennsylvania so I'm a recent graduate of uh, I got a bachelor's in interior architecture so the way Mary Wood's curriculum is set up it's interesting in the fact that they keep us together both the interior architects and the people who are going to be moving on to architecture are kind of second semesters and then also um, share a first semester in our second year. And it is after our second semester of second year is when we split up into our individual niches. So I really uh, appreciated that and the fact that I got a really good solid foundation in uh, both uh, the details that pertain to interiors, but um, structurally and environmentally as well. Or speaking about urban landscapes and the studies and mappings of all of that that kind of interlace the two which is kind of interesting which I was really excited to talk to you about because you are and your firm are kind of known to uh, cross-relate things mm -hmm. <laughs> and we'll definitely get into that um, but you also uh, had a master's as well do you want to tell me a little bit about uh, your master's studies? Sure um, so I think that ties back to my earlier comments so I was I was definitely with my mindset on moving north uh, when okay. I was you know, upon graduating um, from U.S. And so I applied to three schools, all in the Northeast. Um, and um, I visited the schools. I think that's actually really important, you know, when you're thinking about graduate school, somewhat, you know, students are thinking about graduate school, just visiting the place, you know, talking about site, um, kind of fell in love with UPenn. Um, and so it was a beautiful, like, Philly blue day that probably helped in the fall. <laughs> And the campus was, um, you know, showing off. Um, I liked very much uh, the program talked about the mixing of digital and analog, um, you know, it, which at the time uh, when I was looking for graduate school, so that was 2004, um, that was really important to me to find that kind of hybrid because Florida was very much like hands-on model making, drawing everything by hand. And I knew that I wanted to bring that to um, a place where there was uh, a deep interest in also, you know, the digital aspects of the practice. Right, kind of like the next level to your um, to right. your uh, skills. You know, you That's had right. all the foundational uh, set, but now moving into, especially like today's society, technology is being pushed so much further. 
into everything that we do in our lives. So that was definitely a very smart move on your end. Um, where did you grab inspiration from in undergrad or in your master's or when you were in school? And um, how has how has your inspiration changed over the years? How have you grabbed it from other places? Mm-hmm. That's a really, it's a fun question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and I think we tackle, we tackle, um, likes to tackle projects in a similar way in our office now too, which is as a new program comes to us, um, and this was true at school, I really like to start with research. And so the inspiration really came from, from research, um, to the point where, you know, I just couldn't like sit still in a room and be like, let the idea come. I really need to, it was a mixture of research and making. And so, a lot of times for me, it was about whatever the program was, like learning more about the program or others who've maybe investigated that program, you know, whether it be by philosophy or, um, you know, researchers looking at that work and then starting to make things uh, inspired by that. And whether it be, I'm always a big fan of just, you know, a good, good old sheet of bristle paper mm-hmm. uh, and some, uh, you know, watercolors or um, exacto knives. Actually, I cut things a lot um and then, you know, <laughs> yeah I really do uh exacto knife and bristle paper is pretty much all I need and then whatever the topic is at hand just diving deep into it um you know again like letting the site really speak to you the program speak to you uh, that's really where I drew my inspiration from um right nice you got it all from exactly you, you didn't need much because um all the answers were either already there it was just not about finding it or the way how you go about finding it um, exactly. The, the project itself kind of brings its set of complexity, and I, I find that set of variables in a different arrangement each time, like, really inspiring. You know, that, right. that's what keeps me excited about architecture <laughs> and, and, you know, interior, exterior, and art in general. It's just that uh, you always have a new set of variables to work with, and so it's right. a new problem. So I find that you can do something, you can approach something the same way, but have different outcomes in different situations. Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so how do you inspire your students today? Now, looking back at the way you used to take inspiration, how do you encourage them to get inspired? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I can't help it, but it, it is in a similar way. So I yeah. always um, expose them to a lot of resources up front so that they can start to find what is going to be interesting to them and what are they going to research. Um, one thing that I really enjoy doing with my students, and I think students have found they enjoy it as well, is very early on in a project, I do a kind of speed thinking uh, charrette, and we just, like, everybody, you know, in, in a room, papers, pens, and we do an exercise, it's like, you know, in five minutes, write down all the words in your head, like, I present a lot of information to them, and then first five minutes, you know, write down words that come to mind, make some sketches that come to mind. Uh, cut some paper that come to mind, and we and we do this for about an hour, and I think that students find that very liberating. So it's not about you know thinking about what you're going to make for ten days. It's actually about thinking and making on the spot. Wow, yeah, that that puts people in a total different uh, comfort zone, and I think that pushes out different ideas and different um, situations and outcomes. So it's always fun to study. Do you teach first? Uh, do you mind asking what level of architecture you study? Uh, you teach. Or for your uh, the, the entire um, the entire gamut, uh, undergraduate and graduate. So I've been teaching the summer studios for the last few years, and what I love about that is it's usually either a blend of like a vertical blend of third and fourth years or um, graduate level first and second. 
Uh, but beyond that, um, I spent a year teaching uh, uh, the Capstone Studio, and then um, I started my teaching career teaching uh, foundation studios. Uh, just last last year, I taught first year. So I think I've covered them all. <laughs> wow. Um, so what kind of differences do you see when uh, approaching these different level of architecture students? Do you see them caring what they've learned throughout the years? Do you see them all reacting at different levels to certain um, educational hmm. tips? I need to think about that one a little. Um, yeah. I'm a rush. I think, you know, I, I, it really depends on the student. And uh, I, so I'm teaching at Temple. I've been teaching at Temple for some time, and we get a nice variety of students. And sometimes we get transfer students who, who come from a different background, um, and maybe they're slightly older students, um, you know, exposed to various things. Um, I mean, we have some students who've been, you know, entirely in the Temple curriculum, which is a little bit easier to kind of predict, you know, where are they coming yeah. from, or what are their skills. Um, but generally, what I think makes me a, a, a reasonably good professor is that I'm able to come to a student at whatever level they're at um, and kind of understand where they're coming from, um, what their interests are, because that's really important to me. I don't want to force my interests on them. Um, right. And then, like, meet them at a place where they can get even better than they are, you know, like in a semester's time, we've made progress. And so it's hard to say. I enjoy every one of those levels. I thought first year was the most challenging, mm -hmm. uh, but I definitely enjoy uh, right. all of those And I, I, I could agree in the fact that first year is the most challenging and the fact that you're trying to break their preconceived notions of what architecture already is. Like you said, they don't, I feel like some people don't think about architecture school going into cutting and folding, you know, like no. that first year could be a shock to them, you That's know, right. like, oh, where are my skyscrapers? But instead I'm doing arts and crafts. But I think your uh, very uh, versed, well-versed background helps you mm -hmm. come to all those in different individuals at that Absolutely. same level. Mm -hmm. Because again, we're applying those same basic skills of design thinking, like the design process is what you're trying to teach. In exactly. School. That's exactly right. Correct. So um, I guess moving into um, nowadays, how do you try and how has trying to inspire kids changed now through uh, COVID and digital learning? Yes, uh, certainly a challenge, I, I will say. Um, I've taught, I guess it's been a year and a half, I think, since we went um, fully virtual at Temple. Yeah. Um, it, it's a challenge. We, we've been using the tools that are available to us. So Miro, Mural have been actually really helpful, I think, uh, in terms of having... One, one thing I didn't want to give up is that in my studios, I really ask students to pin up their work often in front of each other. Um, when I, in, in undergraduate, that's something we did at Florida all the time. We always pinned up, and whether your project was discussed or not, you're learning from your peers and what they were able to bring forward. Um, in graduate school, it was really strange. It, it, we All of a sudden, it was like individual critiques, um, your one-on-one -on -one meeting with a professor, um, and we weren't really seeing each other's progress. Um, and this is probably, I'm sure, you know, a unique experience I had, um, but I really missed that seeing what others are doing and being inspired by others. And, you know, th there has to be a certain amount of dialogue um, and understanding 
what your classmates are doing that helps you to it helps the entire class move forward right. together, regardless of where your starting point was. So in the digital world, I wanted to make sure we were still able to do that. And so still starting most sessions with a kind of pin-up wall, right, where we just kind of looked around um, was really important. And although I think students sometimes lamented at having to, you know, mm-hmm. listen to other people's critiques, I think in the end yeah. it actually kept us all, um, you know, active and involved. Um, similarly, like every time I log on to class, and I'm sure it's tedious, but every single time I ask everybody, you know, one by one, say hi, check in, are you really yeah. here? How are you? And that kind of personal connection, even if remotely, I personally think goes a long way. I do too, especially, I don't think uh, whether the students realize it now or not, but they need that sense of connection now more than ever. Um, right. So that's something that if you're pushing that I think uh, whether they show it or not is for their benefit. Um, I feel, especially in architecture school, the level of, um, let's say, like standards. Uh, can be considered a bit lower now. Like if we're not exactly meeting in person, having they're having that um, pressure of oh, I need to be pin up ready. Like I need to, I want to show my work. I want to actually show it to people. And in a sense now, like being behind a screen, people can kind of fall or like stoop to a different level. And, oh yeah. But you trying to appease that level just helps <laughs> in this sense. You know, I was grateful. <laughs> my yeah. my last semester got um cut short due to COVID. Uh, my last semester of undergraduate. But um, I was very nervous, even just thinking about now, the students going through still a whole other year of architecture school, not in full person, not in person fully, um, yeah. which creates its own set of uh, issues. But I gla- I'm glad to hear that you're working towards the positive turn. We're working through it. That's right. Which brings me to your um, design firm, your architecture firm, which you are one of the leading founders of. So why 15? Why the name? <laughs> the name is... Um, it- it's uh, it's actually my initials. So it's my initials in Roman numeral, um, XV. So that's the number 15 in Roman numerals. But one of the main um, ideas about 15 is that it really isn't a firm that is about me or is about a singular individual. Um, so I wanted a name that was going to you know live well beyond my years and not uh, represent my name. So uh, XVAD, architect, uh, 15 Architecture and Design, um, but yeah, it's, if you if you look closely at, at our logo, it's my initial. Huh. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, I think something just uh, doing my homework specifically before this podcast, I see that you you and your firm have a very uh, cohesive um, design ideologies. I see what you guys are striving for. I see your mottos, what you guys are about, uh, your message and company motto comes across very clear. And um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about. Um, I kind of see your motto split up into three core values, which are dialogue, understanding, and empathy. Those are the three that I grabbed from reading just off of your website. And I think those three words do go a long way in, talk, in talking about the design process. So uh, the first is dialogue, and you guys are very known for that dialogue between the different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some examples of different types of dialogue that you guys use throughout uh, your day, either in the office? Or, yeah, specifically in the office. Uh, first of all, I'm very impressed by, <laughs> by your research. Yeah, uh, I just very good. <laughs> but even just reading like two or three, like your, uh, just like your simple uh, summary and your what you're about, I was able to grasp your full understanding of what you guys really are thinking. 
So yeah, that's, that's really that. cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I thank you for that. Um, yeah, so dialogue really important, and I I actually pair that you know directly with transparency and um, wanting to offer everybody in the company access to the information um, you know that 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 we all have. I mean, certainly there are certain things that you know the principals will have access to for, at a business level that you know isn't necessary for everybody to, to you know to, to know or discuss and but generally keeping everybody up to speed on like what are the projects we're pursuing why how are we doing financially this year you know what are the targets how are we doing against those um why are we taking on a job why are we not taking on a job and being really open and transparent about those things really helps the entire team like feel like a part of it and and right. make sure that everybody's not saying like why are we doing this <laughs> you know? exactly yeah. I think again you're thinking like a teacher in a sense yeah. and it's very <laughs> effective <laughs> it kind of, no it's very effective though in the sense that um by informing everybody you know knowledge is bliss is what they say so by when people know why they're doing something it just helps them want to do it more <laughs> I think that's right. And it comes from my experience, you know, at, at previous firms where um, I think if you don't have access to that information, then you don't feel like you have the power um, to, you know, to affect um, or to impact because you don't know. Um, and so then you start to, without meaning to effectively like disengage, um, you know, and, and I, and I, that's something that I've seen. And, and I think that was one of the key challenges for us with COVID has, and, you know, and, and not being together in the office is how do we continue to communicate in that way that becomes a lot less, uh, it was very fluid, you know, because I'm in the office when we win a project and everybody's like screaming and we have champagne in the refrigerator, you know, <laughs> and now like we win a, a, a project and like someone has to call me and say, Hey, we won this project. And I'm like, Oh, great. Let's call the team. It's, you know, 10 yeah. Yeah, ten more steps than we when you that than what you were used to. Yeah. But um, I think your key and effective uh, dialogue and conversation helped you guys out in the long run in this. Call. Oh, definitely. And and we're using tools, you know, like Slack and others to to try to stay um, connected. But we're looking forward also to being together again. But but at the end of the day, it's really a philosophy of I always say like over communicating and always inviting everybody to say. If, if they're really not sure why we're doing something, then ask the question and I'm happy to share. Well, I think that also it, it gives, it doesn't give people any excuses anymore. If you're given all the tools that is necessary, you know, this, okay, so why haven't we come up with a solution? Everyone does know the problem. So I like it the way of, you think, Nutella. <laughs> I can be used in any, in both directions. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it makes a team, so a true team. Right. So one of my other questions that I had here was how has dialogue changed, you know, through technology, but we had just kind of covered that as far as different methods like Slack and, you know, we're using Skype now and Zoom. Right. Um, I was just wondering if there's any other tools that you guys have used. We've, um, we've maybe this year, I think we just started this year um, realizing that this is, was still not over. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And we still had a long way to go. Um, we did begin to do a, a daily huddle, and that's at uh, 9.45, we all get together, um, as many of us as possible. I mean, uh, sometimes someone's on site, but even so, we encourage people to call in no matter where they are. 
um, and we just check in for 15 minutes. And it's it's not we're you know it's not really about like what are you doing, but it's more about like do you need anything today? We try to solve problems that would take 20 phone calls like you know right away. Or at minimum, we could say, hey, like the two of us have to talk or there's a conflict in the schedule or, hey, I learned I learned a cool trick yesterday. Um, so we try to use this. Sometimes it's just to check in. How's everybody doing? But every single day um, we meet. And I think that's actually made us stronger uh, because, you know, it doesn't go very long before we've all at least seen each other on camera. Right. And I think those. So like what are some effective communication techniques that you use would be just a simple check in every day helps like every hour, I don't know, every two hours, something that helps your people kind of have that benchmark to move throughout the day, right? Mm -hmm. And on Slack, that's pretty, it's, it's pretty effective that way, I found, because you're not necessarily like calling someone in the middle of their thinking stream, you, you're at least like, you know, posting right. something. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so being known for your uh, engagement in the process and the collaboration between your clients and your, and within your own office, who would you say is your... Um, clientele do you have a specific target audience or are you yeah I guess explain your clientele sure that's fine mm -hmm. we, we found a great client in a lot of the university um, universities I would say um, I think they really get what we're doing and and from our perspective they you know they understand um, the, the process um, they also universities tend to have a, a you know challenging uh, sometimes decision-making process and we help them with that. Um, we help them see answers to their questions, you know, fairly quickly so that they can like move on to the next level of decision-making. So we, we do really enjoy working with universities and we have a number of, of university clients. Um, I personally, of course, love being in academia. So put me in a group of scholars every day, any day, and I'm happy, right? Um, so we have a, a number of clients there. We, when we founded the company, we had a lot of experience um, in the corporate world, uh, and that's definitely something that you know, we'll continue to pursue because those clients give us access sometimes to resources that you know, other clients might not have. Um, but we, we did have a goal of doing more work in Philadelphia, which is our home, um, and to doing more work with non-for-profits um, and kind of mission-driven community organizations. And through, uh, I think, our efforts in, in networking and connecting and, and getting our name out there, we've been really fortunate to do quite a bit of work for um, Public Health Management Corporation, which has a, a number of uh, locations throughout the city uh, with pretty broad reach in both behavioral, mental health, outpatient uh, facilities, and bringing design and like good design to those spaces has been a, a real joy. So it wasn't necessarily a client we sought out, but it was definitely a client that has reach um, and is located in communities that need a lot of, uh, you know, resources. And the fact that we can bring some good quality design to the communities has been really a treat. Right. So the forefront of your thinking and design thinking is kind of, um, not, yeah, kind of giving back, but in the sense that you want to create these built environments that inspire these certain group of people, whether they're going through a specific thing, whether that be academia or whether that be health services, you're trying to inspire something through that, whether that be for hope. And Okay, so I, yeah, I do. That, there, that's, there's an underlying a tie between uh, the products that you do. Um, so when collaborating with these different people from different backgrounds, I was trying to see how you specifically bring the best 
out of each of these different characters. And I think you kind of said it before, so your same passion of academia, maybe. I have a, a, a brief anecdote, and you'll have to tell me how much how much time we have. But um, I think specifically talking about interdisciplinary collaboration. So when I was at Penn, um, getting ready for the summer, thinking about an internship, you know, looking for an internship in, a, in an architectural firm that seemed like what I should be doing. Um, I got an email in my inbox coming from the Museum of Archaeology looking for architects to go and spend a summer in Greece uh, drawing rocks, <laughs> ancient <laughs> rocks, that is. Um, and I, I, it was like, the, it was due that day. I filled out the application. I made a few phone calls and I, and I got it in. And um, I got it. You know, I got it. I got to go to Greece that summer uh, in a, in a, to an archaeological dig um, to draw rocks. Uh, but what I didn't realize at all is that the director of the program, Dr. David Gilman Romano, um, is really a true collaborator. And he uh, no, he was not interested in just like going and digging up goods and, you know, putting him in a museum. <laughs> he wanted to really broadcast like the history of the site. And so he had invited a huge group of, uh, you know, like best in kind researchers, uh, a bunch of PhDs from the University of Arizona and from, the, uh, from, from UPenn. And uh, so I was surrounded for... I guess, eight weeks um, with like experts in, in soils, um, in bones, <laughs> in uh, uh, plant species, uh, landscape architects. Uh, there were people who were experts in religious and like cults, um, in mythology. Wow. And uh, we were all there to, to kind of find out the story of this place. And it, it and I bet it's really... Hmm? Sorry to jump, but I bet he he purposely invited all these different people. He wanted like all the different perspectives of all these different minds, which I think is a beautiful thing. No, no, that's right on. And so, and then like thinking about like just the different perspectives, it was like, well, why did these people settle here? So there was a village where we were staying. It's like, where did these people settle here? And you know, as an architect, I could be like, well, you know, the solar exposure, or we're protected because we're in a valley, or like, you know, whatever. I could come up with my ideas, and then someone else would come and be like. Well, no, actually, you know, there's a there's a there's a earthquake fault line here, and that's you know that has some kind of meaning. And then there's these springs, and water is a center of like these mythological cults. Um, obviously, it has to be here, and so you start un, un, like peeling the onion, understanding the layers. And there was multiple reasons why they should have settled the site there that maybe had nothing to do with solar exposure. <laughs> So wow. a, I, for me, it was, a, and I, I kept going back. I've been involved with the project for many, many, many years. And actually I've sent a bunch of my students now to participate in the project. Um, but I think that that has always stuck with me. And so at 15, we have this arm of collaborators. Um, and uh, right now we're, we're working on a, a few collaborations where we're going to bring in, you know, occupational therapists, industri industrial designers, artists, um, psychologists, um, all to collaborate wow. on a number of projects that, um, you know, at, at the crux of it, it is just quite complex and, and we need their expertise. Right. It's kind of like a, a lot of chefs in the kitchen type of deal. <laughs> so um, speaking about like when uh, putting together big projects like this, where you have a lot of collaboration going on, um, do you, going into these things, do you know that they're going to work 100% or is it kind of like taking that chance? of things will kind of work out in a way that's that beauty of it. I don't, I'm not sure if you kind of know that going into things. I've, you know, I've gained a certain level of understanding that, that things always do work out. And uh, I, I, I do take risks. Um, 
And I think mm-hmm. that's gotten me to where I am, calculated risk, right? A certain level of risk. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't work, I also am a firm believer on, okay, well, let's try it again. So I have to admit, like, some of these collaborations haven't been easy, you know, like we bring them to the clients and the client's like, uh-uh, like, I don't, you know, why am I going to pay for more bodies? And so then we look at ways to like fund it that maybe isn't related to the project or, you know, we work around it. So, um, no, I'm never afraid that it might not work. I'm more just thinking, well, if this one doesn't work, what are we going to do next? <laughs> no, that's a, and that's a good way to put it because I was going to ask you, like, you know, your experiences with like wanting to have that effective, positive change, like, but we also work here to talk about the risk and talk about the negative changes that also happen along the way. You can, there's, you don't just get a positive result. You know, you need a lot yeah. of negatives before you get to that positive. So um, that's, that's exactly where right. we're also here to celebrate those uh, risks. That's exactly right. And, and I think that's a good, you know, that's a, a good takeaway. Like, don't be afraid to either make mistakes or not get it right, um, you know, the first time. And I tell my students who, who were like me were, you know, so, so stressed out about getting their first um, internship in architecture. And it's like, well, if it doesn't work, then work with it, work with a furniture maker or, or work in construction or work with an artist or even if you don't have access to that then work at a supermarket but always be like you know working right. towards the next thing and the next step and and um no you're not always going to get it right and and we've had you know a number of false starts and then we try again and but you there's only one way to move and that is forward <laughs> <laughs> that is very true in a positive direction always moving forward um right uh so i also noticed that like you are also a person that, like, if you're not in a space of learning, it's kind of time to move on. Like, you're always, exactly, you you always want to be learning, I think, is something that Absolutely. someone can take away from you and your personality. Um, so going into, like, the second part of one of your core values is understanding, um, to understand communication, to understand, to create environments for people. You know, we have to kind of understand how us as humans work and the human experience. So um, how do you, I guess, um, value human experience just the word experience what comes to your mind and how do you how dear do you hold that in your design process maybe strangely that the first thing that comes to my mind is that we're all very different and that we're all going to have very different experiences or even experience things in a very different way um so I think we have to be very very careful not to imagine that what we you know crafted or created is going to um, create a particular result in everybody. Um, but I do think sure. that there are some like core, um, maybe core values or core things that, that really, uh, can benefit, like, I think all human beings, like, like access to nature and to daylight, right. Or, um, I think some people don't even notice when they're in a space, but how the space is lit, um, or, you know, um, I, I think there are certain, like, qualities of a space that are universally good for everyone, right? <laughs> um, and I, and, I, and I, we, may, we make sure that we bring those to the table. Um, in terms of, of crafting experiences for people, I think that's where, like, empathy really comes in. Um, it's putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. And I don't know why, but I learned that, like, really early on in life, and I think it must have been my mother, um, but that's something that we always, um, you know, put kind of at the forefront. So who are these people that we're designing this space for and what are their needs? 
and they could be really right. different from ours, right? And we're about to start a project for uh, the Center for Autism, and I think that's going to be a tremendous challenge, and, and this is one where we definitely need our collaborators because designing mm -hmm. for a, a, a community, you know, a portion of the community that just has very different intake of sensory information, um, it's going to require that we really, really, you know, do our, do our due diligence and learn um, and talk to the experts. Um, so certainly their experience is going to be different. So how do we pay yeah. attention to how they will experience the space? Right. So like having empathy, um, kind of ha learning how to deal with change. I was wondering what change, what does change look like to you? If it's a certain, when you hit a certain milestone, because I know change can be different for so many people. So just thinking about like, what do you consider a positive change when you're designing? Tell me a little bit more. What, 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 how do you mean? Um, I guess that was more of a broader question. Um, thinking, I guess, back to how you say you want to create positive change through your design. What do you mean by, uh, what does change look like? What does that change look like? So I think it starts by asking a lot of questions and not taking the status quo as a given. So things, oftentimes we find you know, aren't working the way that they should. Um, and so asking the questions of how should it work and then just against all odds, like make sure that we deliver the way that it should work. Um, now, I think that I often think about our projects as like small little catalysts, you know, and, and it doesn't matter how dull the project is. Like, you know, I mean, we do all sorts, we do all sorts of projects. Yeah. Um, but even if it's like the renovation of a single classroom, I mean, it's a small catalyst. So, okay, so we'll renovate that classroom. But what about the experience of arriving to that classroom or when the students are waiting to get into the classroom or when they leave the classroom, how should they feel? And so then the potential for that as a catalyst to maybe either empower the inhabitants or like start to transform the space around it. So okay. positive change, um, in my mind, means we're going to create something, something that didn't exist before, both from the experience of the individuals who will inhabit it, uh, but then also the neighborhood or even, you know, its close contact. How right. does it, how is it an opportunity to change things, to make them right. better? And I think does that kind of yeah. answer? No, that makes, that makes perfect sense because then we're able to tie it back. Okay, you kind of need to know your history before you can make that positive change. It's the learning from those mistakes, from those experiences. And this can kind of be described as, described as your innovative thinking. This is how you think. And this is how you think in the office when you're designing. Mm -hmm. I was wondering how, because that's a lot of, uh, that's a different way to think. And I was wondering how that kind of translates into your maybe personal life. How do you start to think about things through, in, when you experience through your own life? Oh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm getting into it. I love this question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very good. Um, Let's see. So actually, I'm going to go back in history a little bit to say that I moved to the States when I was 12, mm -hmm. I guess for the second time, right? Because we said I was born in, 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 uh, yeah. in White Plains, New York. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I grew up in Chile and I moved to the States when I was 12. And, you know, fairly uncomfortable situation, like learning to speak the language and trying to fit in uh, culturally. And then after a few years, we moved back to Chile, and I was in high school, and kind of had to do it all over again, and, and then moved back here again to, 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 to come to college. And so my family moved a lot. And um, 
at some point in my life, I think I had a difficult time with change. Uh, I would get very upset if things didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. Um, but with time, I think I've learned to embrace that and just say, well, here's my plan for today. Most likely it won't go like I planned, but <laughs> we're going to go with it, right? And see where the day mm -hmm. takes me. But also a check-in. Like I do check in every once in a while and make sure that I didn't take so many um, diversions, let's say, that I didn't get to the end goal. So allow for some of that flex. And I think that's a, a hard lesson. It was a hard lesson for me. Like, don't get anxious about it. Allow for that flex. But then do go back and check in and make sure you're still heading in the direction you wanted to head, you know, head in. Um, I think in terms of our company, uh, we're planners and we do take risks, but they're planned risks to some degree. And that, I think that goes back to like that business minor. So we have a plan. We have three-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan. And we're constantly checking against those targets. Um, and we can exceed them. Or if we don't meet them, we adjust. But at least having that plan, I think, has helped us be, you know, pretty successful right. the first few years. Kind of. I was just actually on a, a, a web listening to a webinar yesterday and was talking about your your marketing strategy and like sticking to your motto and how you can you always have to kind of check in with that motto. Make sure you're following. Make sure, OK, is my firm following these? And are, are we who we say we are? And like we change and we adjust. And that's something that you should be doing like often, always checking in to make sure that. Um, you're making sure that you're who you say you are and you're sticking to your guidelines and your motto and what you said in the beginning, which yeah. I think is good because um, you do keep the forefront of the human experience always at the top of your mind. That's the number one for me. That's what I put in my cover letters. That's what, something that I find very similar in the design process. It's something very important. And I think we can agree on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so two more questions I have. Okay. Um, how would you describe your firm's aesthetic as far as visual representation? What would that be through renderings or maybe your social media pages? Is there a certain go-to uh, line that you that you yeah that you say, or is that something that you strive for when visually representing your firm? Because I checked out your Instagram, it's pretty cool. It's, and abstractness in some of the photos is very, it's different. You know, it's not your typical architecture firm uh, Instagram, which I found was cool. Yeah, I think you know the the abstract component um, that actually goes that goes deep in our roots in the sense that um, about seeing things not only for just what they are, but also for the possibility of what they can be. Um, and for what else they might inspire and the fact that you might see it and think of one thing and I might see it and think of another. So not giving it all away, but finding those like hidden moments that contain the DNA of something, but that you can input your experience into it and make it yours. Like that's where mm -hmm. that kind of abstraction really comes from. I um, like that. Aesthetic. <laughs> and the, you, you picked up on it, which is cool. Um, the, in terms of our aesthetic, uh, I want to say that we're really again, careful to be very true to our clients. Um, we certainly guide them in the decision-making and we're never going to present something we don't like to them. But we do allow them to, to bring their personality to the table when we're designing for them. So we allow, while we definitely have a design sensibility and a design aesthetic, which I think is, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's contemporary, it's fresh, it's dynamic. Um, I think it's also kind of simple and classic, but we also want the client to put in their splash of color in there. Um, you know, we'll work within our parameters, but we definitely want to make sure that it feels theirs when they're yeah. in it. 
you know? Correct. Like, we collaborated with them, but we didn't, like, it's not like that show where, like, the, the people appear and their house has been done. And right, right. <laughs> yep, exactly. No, you're working with them every step of the way. They're invested That's in that right. process. Yeah. And it's very evident through your work. So I have one last question for you. Sure. Um, if you had to give yourself advice, your former student self advice now, what would it be? Go back when you were in school. What's something you would say to yourself? My student self. Um, I'm going to go to a place where it was, I think, between, like, being a student and maybe the very early years of my career. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think at that time, I was quite impatient um, in that I was frustrated that I didn't know everything, and I wanted to know everything right away. <laughs> and I've you know, 15 years practicing. I don't know everything. But I have developed an, a certain level of patience um, with both myself, but also the profession, that there's just so much to learn and that maybe that's the beauty of it. So like, take a deep breath, Jimena, just give yourself time, absorb everything that's in front of you. And remember that most likely everyone else in the room has, you know, been there before and understands you don't know something. I will be happy to share with you, you know, what that is. And and looking back, like the amount of things I've, I've, I've learned over the last 15 years, I couldn't have even dreamed of or imagined. Um, and I was so stressed out and so anxious that I didn't know everything and that people were going to think that I didn't know anything. Um, and I think if I, had, if I could now tell myself, hey, you're going to learn it, you're going to learn it all. It just takes a really long time. And, and for now, like, you know, ask for help if you don't know the question and no one's going to judge you. I think that probably would have been helpful. <laughs> at that time I probably wouldn't have believed myself but, <laughs> but. <laughs> listening to you now just gives me hope and I'm I hear you and I'm in those shoes now so I think I appreciate every word that you give to us because we're here to have that open conversation about those doubts and worries and to encourage other uh, kids and students who are watching this um that yeah there is that light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> absolutely and you know Take on, take on every opportunity that comes your way and don't be afraid that it's going to take you away from your end goal because what I found is that it will enrich and it will change your end goal for the better. Mm -hmm. You know, if I hadn't, I was so set on having a, uh, an opportunity in an architecture internship, you know, but if I hadn't gone to Greece and I hadn't experienced what I experienced, um, then I probably have a pretty different outlook. Um, so allow those things to change you, back to change, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then checking in though, and making sure that it's still aligned, you know, if, if somehow that yeah. took you to pay, being a pastry chef and that's not where you wanted to end up, then like, hurry up, quit that and <laughs> get back on track. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? One last question before you go, if you can just give out places for people to reach you, either your firm's website or your Instagram handle. Perfect. Yeah. So you can definitely reach us at um, xvadesign.com. And all of our emails are there. Um, so you can find me and you can find anybody on my team. And please do reach out because we, we love the conversation um, and we love to hearing what you're up to. I just want to thank you guys for watching. This has been another episode of A Student's Perspective. We hope you liked this discussion with the design industry from A Student's Perspective. Please like, share, and comment. And stay tuned for more inspiring conversations to come.